Alright, if you would open up with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 6. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 6. And while you're turning there, let me say a special word of, word of welcome to our visitors. Uh, we're very glad to have you with us this morning. And uh, we certainly pray you'll be blessed by your time with us. And uh, we're very thankful, uh, very thankful to have you here. Uh, looking at the Gospel of Luke and chapter 6. On July 31st, 1856, a 29-year-old young man named James Pettigrew Boyce stood before the Board of Trustees at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He was the newest faculty member. Uh, having just before that been the pastor at First Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, James Pettigrew Boyce had been born in Charleston, attended Brown University, gone to seminary at Princeton. Uh, he had met his wife at a friend's wedding and two days later asked the young lady to marry him and she did. Uh, he was a statesman. A gentleman, a scholar, but he was also a man whose heart burned with love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And his heart burned with a love for the lost. In fact, James Boyce would be used by God to help found the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, the speech that he gave this day uh, in 1856 in Greenville, South Carolina, would lead to the founding of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, his speech was entitled, Three Changes in Theological Education, and he was arguing for three things that he wanted to see. He argued that there needed to be a seminary that was very serious about providing in-depth world-class theological education because, frankly, up to that point, there were very few seminaries in the southern part of the United States, and those that existed were quite subpar. They were basically repeating the ideas that were coming out of Germany that were very critical of the Bible, um, very skeptical about the miracles of Jesus, Boyce said it was time for Baptists to lead the way in doing theology well. Second, he argued that this new seminary needed to be a confessional seminary. He said there are so many other seminaries that started out believing the gospel, teaching the gospel, but over time they had left the faith. He said, we need a seminary where each and every professor is required to uphold the Bible as the inspired and infallible word of God. He said that the professors at this seminary must be able to uphold the beliefs of the churches that the seminary is serving. And so he said the professors at this seminary should uphold the beliefs of those who call themselves Baptists. And then, finally, he said, there, there needs to be a seminary that's willing to accept men who are not already classically educated. Because at that point, to get into seminary, 
You had to be ordained, or to be ordained in most denominations as a pastor. You had to have already gone to college. You had to have received a satisfactory classical education. You had to be fluent in Latin and Greek. Now, Boyce was all for classical education, and he was all for the study of Latin and Greek, especially Greek, since it's the language of the New Testament. But he said requiring men to already know all this before they can even come to seminary and before they can be ordained as a pastor, he felt it was an obstacle that was too high. He said there are many who feel called to the ministry. Many who have others around them saying that they are gifted and they are called who are nevertheless being kept out of the ministry because they haven't received a classical education or don't know their Greek or their Latin. He said, let's have a seminary that welcomes these people and then we'll train them in these things. Uh, This was the day, 1856, this was the beginning of globalization. Uh, For the first time, there were new technologies that were making the world a little bit smaller. Uh, People were able to a little more quickly get to countries that they had never been to before. Mass publications were beginning to give uh, documents a maximum outreach. Boyce longed for these Christians in the American South to do whatever was necessary to equip and send out as many men as possible to the lost of America, the American frontier, the American West, and to the rest of the world. So here's just a little bit of what he said at that important speech that marks the founding of the Southern Seminary and uh, was a high point in the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention. He said... The whitened harvest, the awakened activity of the churches, the favorable reception given to the word of God have never been more signally manifested. Never have been heard more piercing cries for the gospel than those with which Ethiopia accompanies her outstretched hands. Never have been felt deeper longings for the kingdom of God that are uttered by praying hearts throughout Christendom. Never has sin appeared to develop more fearful evils. Never has hydra-headed error so fully or so variously exalted herself. Neither has God ever multiplied so gracious an extent the means which he has given the church as an aid to the ministry not to diminish its labors, but to make them fourfold more abundant and a hundredfold more valuable. He said the world seems ready, lying at the very door of the Christian church, yet calling for laborious efforts to gather it in. Oh, were there ever a time when we could expect that God would answer the prayers of his churches and overflood the land and the world with a ministry adequate to uphold his cause in every locality? It should seem to be now. In other words, he said, if there's ever been a time when suddenly we're able to reach the maximum number of people, look at the people in the churches, they're praying. There's been a new revival of people praying about the cause of missions. There's been this new uh, Great Commission movement that has taken place in our day. He said, we need to start a seminary to get these men trained and to get them out to the world. He later wrote to a friend. He said, I have begged for this seminary as I would not beg for myself if I was starving. The seminary begun and almost as soon as it begun, it got in trouble. 
because the Civil War began and the Civil War threatened its existence. And James Boyce wrote to his fellow professor and he said, suppose we quietly agree that this seminary may die, but we'll die first. Of course, Boyce gave his life to creating, establishing, and sustaining Southern Seminary. It began in Greenville, South Carolina, later moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where it is now the largest theological seminary in the world. More men being trained for the pastorate on the campus of Southern Seminary than anywhere else in the world today. More pastors and missionaries have been sent to the world from Southern Seminary than any other seminary in human history. And from Southern Seminary came Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, Southwestern in Texas, New Orleans Seminary, Gateway Seminary, uh, Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. So that today there are 21,000 students being trained for the pastorate and for missions through those seminaries. So... I I hold James P. Boyce before you as an example to ask you, how is your heart for the lost of this world? Do you have a desire to see the nations come to Christ? Does the reality of untold billions walking in blindness towards hell burden your heart? In Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, we are given a snapshot of our Savior's love for the world. Jesus has just chosen his 12 disciples. And we might expect that his next action would be to take these 12 brand new disciples away for some sort of training retreat. We might expect Jesus and his disciples to go on some sort of planned getaway. So that he can teach them without the distraction of other people. Instead, we see the exact opposite. Look at Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre. And Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Now, I love the Gospel of Luke. Each gospel writer has his unique style, each gospel writer has his unique purpose in writing. Frankly, each of the four Gospels is worth more than our very lives. We should be willing to bleed and die if that's required for us to make sure these four Gospels get passed to the next generation. But while each Gospel is wonderful, Luke is my personal favorite. And if you'll remember, Luke tells us at the beginning of his Gospel that he has written a carefully researched, trustworthy orderly account of the life of Jesus. Uh, Perhaps more than any of the other Gospels, this Gospel was meticulously written, poured over, carefully constructed. Luke wanted to make sure that everything he included was true, and he wanted to make sure that he included the details that really mattered. 
And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know his efforts were successful. So in our passage this morning, we can be sure Luke is not using any throwaway words. Luke does not include any details that do not matter. Just the opposite. These three verses are teaching us something very important about the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ministry of Jesus was a ministry to all who would come to him. Most of these people in this crowd were likely strangers to Jesus. In his humanity, he he did not know them. And yet he loved them. And he had compassion on them. He was willing to weary himself to make sure that everyone that had a disease and came to him was healed. Uh, Notice our text says he healed them all. Everyone. As many as came, he healed them all. How is your love for the stranger this morning? How is your love for that person in front of you at Target? You don't know them at all. How is your love for the acne-faced teenage boy handing you your chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A? How is your love for that dear old lady driving 20 miles per hour on Highway 64? The Bible teaches us to have a particular love and a particular kind of fellowship with those who are in the family of God. And yes, Jesus would cultivate a special relationship with his disciples. But the Bible is also very clear that we are to love everybody and we are to love everybody for Christ's sake. That every human being in this world is created in the image of God. Every person in this world is related to us through Adam. Every person is an eternal soul that will live forever in heaven or in hell. God's people are to be a people who ooze with love for everyone. How do we see this in our passage? Well, I want you to notice the different people who were in this crowd that came to see Jesus. First, we see the disciples. Uh, These were those who already knew Jesus personally. They were now beginning to follow him. But second, we see that there was a great multitude of people from Judea. Jesus isn't in Judea. He's in Galilee. He's in the north. These people have come from Judea in the south. And these are not just a few travelers who just happened to be in the area. We're told that there were a great multitude of them. There was a a great multitude of people who would come from the southern part of Israel to north, to Galilee. They had to go through Samaria to get there. Likely, these were people who were desperate. Most of them were sick. Or had illnesses for which no cure had yet been found. Some of them may have been emotionally or spiritually desperate. And they were longing for answers. They had heard about this rabbi called Jesus up in Galilee. And these people had taken pains to be here. They had traveled days to come to Jesus. They had sacrificed time and energy and income to come to Jesus. From Judea. And then there's another group in this crowd. 
Luke mentions particularly those who had come from the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is part of Judea. It's the capital city of Israel. It's the heart of the religious life of Israel. It may have been that some in this crowd were religious leaders sent on an investigative mission. Who is this new teacher? What do we need to think about him? Is he going to be a troublemaker for us? Probably most of these people from Jerusalem were seekers and sick people. They had found nothing in Jerusalem to help them, and so they were coming to Jesus. These were not the only people in the crowd. Luke mentions that people had come from as far away as the seacoast cities of Tyre and Sidon. So these people are from the north. These people are from the northeast, uh, what would today be known as the country of Lebanon. Uh, These were Phoenician cities. These were Gentile cities. In fact, Sidon was named after one of the sons of Canaan, who was the son of Ham, the son of Noah. So, in other words, Sidon was Noah's great-grandson, one of the earliest in the lines of the Canaanite peoples. So the point is this. While Jews were coming to Jesus from Galilee, and Jews were coming to Jesus from the south and Judea, Gentiles... Non-Jews, people from the north were coming to Jesus. This was a mixed crowd. This was a diverse crowd. There were people from different ethnicities, people from different religions, different backgrounds, all united by the fact that they were needy and they were looking for something. And Jesus turned none of them away. He healed every one of them. And in the very next paragraph, we see that he taught them all. Uh, Notice that Luke mentions in our passage that there were some who were troubled with unclean spirits. Uh, Some people struggle with this because they've personally never encountered anything like this. They've, They've never seen anyone dealing with obvious demonic oppression. And so they come to a passage like this with some skepticism. They, they assumed that the ancient peoples must not have known about certain ailments, especially mental ailments. And, and they must have just misunderstood and thought that this was demonic oppression. Uh, there are multiple responses to that, and we'll cover a lot more of those as we study Luke's gospel together. But I'll just mention two responses this morning. First, there does seem to be a connection between the worship of pagan gods... And demonic oppression. The kinds of descriptions we find in the Gospels are most often found today in places like India and Africa where pagan gods are still worshipped through practices that seem strange to us. There are still places in the world where pagan gods are worshipped through trances, ecstatic speech, heavy use of alcohol, and more. And Deuteronomy tells us that these pagan gods are not gods at all, but actually demonic forces, demons. So we should not be surprised that cultures who give themselves to the worship of demons will see more incidents of demonic oppression, unlike what we see in our secular culture. Even in Israel in the first century, The Romans had set up altars and sanctuaries to the pagan gods. 
just north of where this passage is happening is Caesarea Philippi, where there is a sanctuary that had been dedicated by the Romans to the worship of the goat god Pan. Festivals there included music and drinking and all sorts of sexual immorality and the sacrifice of young virgins to this pagan god. That's just miles away from where this passage is taking place. Uh, Jesus and his disciples later in Luke uh, go to Caesarea Philippi, to the very event where that happened. They're surrounded by Galileans, many of whom had participated in these very wicked and demonic festivals. In our own land, I would simply encourage you to do some research on the practices of many of the Native American tribes that were here before the Europeans arrived. A lot of the same kind of practices, ecstatic speech, trances, uh, those sorts of things were happening here, uh, including human sacrifices and the worship of pagan gods. And we have quite a few accounts from various tribes of Native Americans of people dealing with something very similar to demonic oppression or demon possession. So I think there is a connection between the worship of pagan deities, which Deuteronomy tells us is the worship of demons, and demonic oppression. My other response would be this. I do think that we should not be surprised that there was suddenly a high number of people being possessed by the devil or by demons and being oppressed by demons during the days of Jesus because you would think that Satan would be working harder than ever during those days and especially in that area where Jesus was found. The truth is, when you read the Old Testament, you don't find many examples of demonic oppression. And later on in church history, you don't find many examples there either. It seems like this was something that happened at an unusual level during the time that Jesus was walking this earth. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? The Son of God comes to earth and Satan and his minions jump into overdrive. The the forces of darkness rally together to wreak havoc on Israel to disrupt God's salvation plan. And so we don't need to cast doubt on this. There's lots of reasons to think that Luke is absolutely right, that these people were being troubled with unclean spirits. And here's the point. What's the point? Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Which ones? Was it just the Galileans who were cured? No. Was it just the Jews who were cured? No. All who came to Jesus, longing for help and healing, found that he was willing And he was able. And remember, Jesus healed physical bodies and he rescued people from demonic oppression for this main reason to show that he was the one that they should turn to for ultimate healing, true healing, salvation from sin and the wrath of God. Jesus did not come mainly to heal people from bodily diseases. In fact, those people that he healed, they'd still eventually die. He came to accomplish all that was necessary so the people from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth would be saved. From the very beginning, when when God spoke to Abraham, the vision of God's redemption plan was a global vision. Through Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, the nations 
would be blessed. And later, the risen Lord Jesus Christ commissioned his disciples and he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We are a missionary Baptist church. Do we share this global mission? Do we have a heart for the nations like our Lord did? Like he does. Do we long to see help and healing, salvation come to those around us and those we've never met? Do we love as Jesus loved, including loving the strangers around us in eastern North Carolina and loving the strangers we've never met in India and Europe and the rest of the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So here in our passage, we see that the love of Jesus is a general love. It is a diverse love. It is an active love. And it is a vocal love. And that could have been a whole other sermon, but I didn't do it. So I'm just going to show it to you. It's a general love. He loved all that were in the crowd. It was a diverse love. He loved them regardless of where they came from. He loved them regardless of their ethnicity. It was an active love. He showed it by healing them. And it was a vocal love. He loved them by speaking truth to them. Truth that they desperately needed to hear, which is the rest of this chapter. In fact, after healing the people of their physical ailments, what we see in Jesus' message is the gospel itself. Jesus teaches this crowd of the sinfulness of man. And the corruption of our hearts in verses 43 through 45. And then he teaches them of the way of salvation. The way of obedient faith in verses 46 through 49. He healed them all. And then Jews and Gentiles alike. He taught the gospel to them all. Now I mentioned earlier that James P. Boyce had gone to seminary himself at Princeton Seminary. Princeton Seminary was a Presbyterian seminary that began in 1812. It was part of what was called then the College of New Jersey. Uh, The College of New Jersey had been around since well before 1812. In fact, back in 1758, Jonathan Edwards had been the third president of the College of New Jersey. But he was president for only a few months because he died when an inoculation backfired and he contracted smallpox. That tells you what kind of college this was. When the College of New Jersey was founded, it was a biblically faithful, missionary-hearted college. And when Princeton Seminary was started in 1812, it was that missionary spirit that was at the center of its existence. Yet what do we see when we look at Princeton University today? What do we see when we look at Princeton Seminary? Still a major institution at Princeton University. They left the gospel over a hundred years ago. Those institutions left faithfulness to the Bible over a hundred years ago. But back when Princeton Seminary first began... Its first president was a man named Archibald Alexander. And he said this. If the Christian church, excuse me, if the Christian church 
felt her obligations to her Lord and Redeemer as she ought, the whole body would be like a great missionary society whose chief object is to spread the gospel over the whole world. Do you feel your obligation to your Lord and Redeemer as you ought? Are we part of a great missionary society whose chief object is to spread the gospel over the whole world? He said true believers earnestly desire the whole world to come to the knowledge of God. And it is their habitual determination to do what in them lies to bring mankind into a saving acquaintance with him. I love that phrase that their habitual determination It's not that once a year. They think about missions again when they give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And like, oh yeah, we need to help missions. And they give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And they don't think about it again until next year. No, a habitual determination. That is, it's a habit. It's with them every day. It's part of their lifestyle. They are determined each day, each week, each month of the year to do what in them lies to serve the spread of the gospel throughout the whole world. So is that us? When you're behind that person at Target, when you see that young man at Chick-fil-A, when you drive behind that old lady on Highway 64, is there anything in you that longs for their salvation? And is there anything in you that moves you to pray for the salvation of the lost around you each day? And is there anything in you that moves you to act for their salvation? Evangelism does not happen by accident. Evangelism must be intentional. Jesus was intentional. He could have gone away. He could have taken a retreat. No, he brought his disciples down and he said, you want to follow me? Let me show you right here at the beginning, new disciples. Here's what following me looks like. We're going to spend the entire evening till early in the morning. We're going to greet every person that comes to us and we're going to love them and we're going to care for them and we're going to heal them and we're going to tell them the gospel. we come to the Lord's table this morning, we are coming as those who have received the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are coming as those who have been healed by him and are being healed in a way far deeper than any physical illness. Knowing Jesus has become the most important part of who we are. This is the most important relationship in our lives. Jesus is not just our Savior. He is our Lord, our husband, our dearest friend, the ground of all our hopes. And as we take the cup and as we take the bread, we receive it as though from the hands of Jesus himself. These are tokens of his love for us. These are his pledge to us of the wedding feast to come when he comes back to get us. But this table is not for those who do not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Could it be that there are people in this room this morning who are unsaved? And could it be that if you were to die today, your future would be an eternity in hell, not an eternity in heaven? If Jesus is still a stranger to you, you don't need to take the bread or the cup. You don't need to profess something you don't possess. You need to do like the people in Luke 6, and you need to take every pain required, and you need to come to Jesus. 
You need to come with all of your infirmities, with all of your sinfulness, with all of your messed up condition, as broken and stressed as you are. Just come to him. Knowing that there is no one else that can fix you but him. There's no one else that can take away the guilt of your sins. There's no one else that can make you right with God. There's no one else that can give you a love beyond any love you've ever known. If you're an unbeliever, you need to imitate the crowd and come to Jesus. And if you're a Christian, we need to imitate our Savior that we claim to follow. By loving all and seeking to share the gospel with all. Amen? Amen. This time I'm going to ask our deacons to come and to help.